You're listening to The Venue Podcast. The Venue is a worship gathering at Southcrest Baptist Church. We hope that this podcast helps you find your greatest pleasure and purpose in Jesus. Amen. Hey, would you all join me in thanking the band and leading us well this morning? I'm thankful for David uh, and uh, everyone else who is a part of the team for uh, reminding us of great gospel truth and uh, leading us in song. And uh, I was just thinking this before we came up today. Uh, David, I might start a petition to have uh, more acoustic sets and less drummers. Uh, Now, this next statement I feel I can say because I am a drummer, but we don't need no stinking drummers. I love Mo, and I hope he gets better soon. We don't. It sounded great this morning. Amen? If you have a Bible, we're in Colossians chapter 3. I invite you to open there. Been looking forward to this time and preparing for several weeks now. And as you're turning there, if you would, join me in praying. Lord Jesus, in this moment, the Holy Spirit is all we need. Help me, Lord. Even in my human effort, with my human desires to want to be something that's not necessary, Lord, clearly let your truth and your word go forth this morning. Would you encourage believers and convict hearts where necessary? And above all else, magnify yourself. In Jesus' name we pray, and everyone said, Amen. The title of my time this morning is The Christian's Reality. The Christian's Reality. Now, I struggled with two different titles The Christian's Reality, apostrophe, yes. And then the other one I thought about was the Christian reality. Now, how many of you see there's a difference between the two besides just an apostrophe S? Yeah, I I was talking to two of our staff guys a couple days ago about it, and they essentially kind of affirmed what I was thinking. And I landed on this title for a specific reason because I believe the Christian's reality kind of fits where I want to go this morning, what I hope to communicate to you. So in my preparations this week, I, uh, I came across a book titled Waiting on God by a gentleman by the name of Wayne Stiles. Now, Wayne is a former pastor. He lives here in Texas. And in his book, he explains in a certain part of the book uh, early on, he explains his feelings on greeting cards and to help picture how he feels about them and to help picture the difference that he sees in what may be a reality for some may not be a reality for others, okay? Does that make sense? So in his book, he says this, and I quote, I'm convinced that some company today could make a killing if it actually had the guts to market dysfunctional greeting cards. Most birthday or holiday cards gush with flowery sentiments such as, to the greatest father in the world, or mom, you're my best friend. Well, yeah, what if they're not? What if your dad was an angry jerk and your mother abused you? What if your brother backstabbed you and stole the inheritance? Where are the greeting cards for that reality? 
Just once, I'd like to see a card that says this, Mom, you blew it, but I love you anyway. Happy Mother's Day. (laughs) He says, it'll never happen. Even if such cards existed, few people would actually have the guts to send it to them. So he he goes on to say this, So instead, we shop for cards that are blank inside, and we do our best to jot down some positive words. But there are no easy solutions, only godly ones. After all, on some level, we all deserve to open a dysfunctional envelope since we contribute our own family defects. End quote. Uh, I hope you appreciate his honesty uh, in that statement. I, I find it kind of funny, but I also, again, find it to be brutally honest I've actually had that thought at some point uh, in time as I've been searching for a card for my wife. I always tell her that I try and find the card that best fits our situation. Um, But I've never actually stopped and thought about a time where maybe Sarah and I were in disagreement and I wanted to go to Walgreens to find a dysfunctional greeting card to tell her how I really felt. I'm glad that's actually not a reality because it probably dig me deeper into the hole. So in thinking about that, And reading that a couple days ago, it actually brought to mind something else that I I had learned several years ago. Has anyone ever heard the phrase that perception is reality? Show of hands. You ever heard that phrase? Maybe you've used it. Maybe you live by it. I once knew a man uh, who was a deacon. This was at my previous church. He had graduated Uh, with a degree in psychology, and we were having a conversation one time about something in particular, and he turned and said this to me. He said, you know, Tony, perception is reality. And in that moment, I didn't actually say this thing, but I thought just to myself, I was like, oh my gosh, he's so wrong. (laughs) This guy went to school, and he's not right. I was actually kind of stunned in that moment to hear that because he was a little older than me. He had gone to school for this. But the reason I felt that way is because just a couple of months earlier, I'd had one of those moments in my life where a light bulb went off. It was like one of those things you learn as a human being, like, yeah, that's true. And, and here's what I learned just a, a month or two earlier, and it was in a discussion that I had with my pastor back in Tennessee, who was my mentor. He reminded me that perception is not always reality. How many of you heard that? Believe that agree with it. Now, do you want to know why I believe that perception is not always reality? Here's why. Because your reality, along with mine, I don't want to be misunderstood here, our reality is distorted. It's skewed, right? You're a broken human, just like I am. Great way to begin a sermon though, isn't it? Hey, welcome. You're broken. But here's another great reality. In our brokenness, we realize and hopefully accept our need for forgiveness and our need for a savior. Hopefully we see our need for Jesus. Now, if I were to kind of illustrate or explain a little bit further what I mean by perception is not always reality, I would tell you this, get married. People who are married 10, 20 years, raise your hand for me. Yeah, Uh, Kara's kind of laughing. Yeah, think about that. Oh, young ladies, young men who are striving or moving towards marriage, hang with me. You'll, You'll see exactly what I mean once you get there. But get married. 
in marriage, you will learn how to love your spouse as Christ has loved the church, hopefully, Lord willing. And also you will learn how to deal with them on a daily basis based upon their reality and yours. Sometimes the two clash. Married couples, can you agree with me? Amen? Yeah? Sarah's pioneering this this charge. Amen. There have been many times in my own life and in my own marriage where the reality that I perceived was not Sarah's reality. And she didn't understand me and vice versa. And what happens when our realities don't necessarily align? There's conflict. There's been a few of those in the 11-ish years that Sarah and I have been married. There's one particular story a lot of our students know that involves a butter knife being thrown in a door. Sorry, babe. If if you ask her about it, I, I probably deserved it. So why all this talk about reality? As I've studied this passage, I've come to believe that Paul is pulling back the veil on human reality. Paul has pitted two specific realities side by side to show the Christians in Colossae who they once were and an even better, who they are now. So we've been working through Colossians chapter three for about the last month or so. And we've covered the old reality, which is the reality of our lives before we met Jesus. And it was a life full of impurity, evil desire, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk, just to list a few. Now that might sound kind of harsh, but I pulled all those from the Holy Bible, the word of God. But Paul flips the picture and now goes on to explain to the Colossians what their new reality looks like or what it should look like for that matter. So before we actually read the text this morning, if you would look at Colossians chapter three, look at verse one, just put your eyes on it really quick. I wanna wanna point out something. I want you to see the natural flow of Paul's thought as he wrote this part of the letter. Verse one says... If then you have been raised with Christ. Okay, so there's the first part. Just keep that in mind. Skip down to verse five. Paul says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Now, skip on down to verse 12, which is where we're at this morning. Paul says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. So notice that. Paul's clearly saying, if you have been raised, so he's talking to believers the majority of us in this room, if you are put to death, put on. Very simple logic flow here. Do y'all see that? Okay. Now, if I could kind of summarize really quick, really briefly, chapter three up until this point, I would say this. Christian, you have been raised with Christ, so put to death the old you. Get rid of the life that was buried with Jesus in that tomb. Put to rest the life that is completely displeasing to God and can do no good apart from God. And since the old you has died and now you have a new reality, clothe yourself with these things. Quite literally, Paul says, put on these things. These are the things that God has given you because you have been chosen, you are now holy and beloved. So pick up at verse 12 with me and we'll read down to verse 15. Paul says, put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Verse 13, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. 
As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ, verse 15, rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And then he kind of summarizes and ends that thought by saying, and be thankful. Amen. Now, since Brandon and Cole have so gracefully covered uh, every verse up until this point, they've covered this old reality, thankfully, by, when, by the way, a couple of month or two ago when we were sorting out passages and picking who was going to speak when, uh, thankfully, uh, I was kind of pleased when Brandon said, I got verses 12 through 15. I was like, okay, whew, I got a little bit of a, I think I can do this. But Brandon and Cole have so gracefully covered this old reality. Thankfully, I get to talk to you this morning or preach on God's mysterious act of grace in giving us a new reality. Amen? How many of you are excited in this room, if you're a Christian, that you have a new reality? All right, let's think about that for a few moments. Uh, Now, for time's sake, depending on who you are and how you might read this and how you might see it, you may see eight or nine, possibly 10 realities but I don't want to keep you here till 1230 because lunch comes and then Baptist hour comes. Y'all know about Baptist hour? Sunday afternoon naps? Yeah, that's coming. I don't want to keep you here that late. So to kind of quickly go through verses 12 through 15, I want to highlight four realities. Four realities, you'll see them on the screen behind me. The first one, very clearly, is the reality of God's adoption. God's adoption, it comes right from verse 12. Paul says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Christian in this room, listen. This morning, make no mistake about it. You are not here out of random circumstance. Rather, you are here out of sovereign grace. It is no accident that you're a Christian, right? Think about your life until this point. I've never heard a Christian say, you know, I'd really just kind of stumbled into this lifestyle and I figured it kind of works. No, most of the time for the person to become a Christian, a specific list of things had to happen for you to be converted, to become a Christian. And first and foremost, what had to happen is God had to say, that one's mine. Amen. God said that first, that one's mine. So Paul uses a specific word here and not just here, but in many other letters in the New Testament. He uses a specific word here in Colossians, and it's a word that sometimes, depending on who you are and what kind of conversation you're having, um, this word can be kind of controversial in our day and time, but it is very clear, and it's right here. I'm not making anything up. Dear brother and sister, God chose you. You're his, just like he chose the believers in Colossae a couple thousand years ago. Now, Paul goes on to write about this doctrine we call of of grace or the doctrine of God's choosing, or another word is the doctrine of God's election. He writes about this in several of the letters. Specifically, there's a point, if you want to jot it down, Ephesians chapter two, verses eight and nine. And another one in first Corinthians chapter one, verses 28 and 29, where Paul says, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human might boast 
in the presence of God. That is why the doctrine of God's choosing is so awesome and glorious, because if it were up to us, we could say, yeah, I did that. I chose God. No, he chose you. I was thinking about this as I was trying to think of a way to illustrate this, and I came across this as I was reading. You know what I love about God's unbiased choosing of who gets adopted into his family? It makes me think about the little orphan, a little girl or a little boy, who at the right time was adopted by a couple. And maybe this couple just couldn't have children, and they were considering adoption to grow their family. So this little girl, this little boy gets adopted, And as he or she grows up into this loving family, one day when this child enters into middle school, word gets out that this this child was adopted. And the bully in their class decides to be nothing else but a bully. And they can't handle this. So this bully decides to make fun of this child. The bully decides to belittle this child just because they were adopted. They single them out. They make them feel separated and they hurt them. But here's what's so great about this. In defense of her situation or his situation of being adopted, the little kid that was adopted can turn to that bully and say, oh yeah, well your parents had to have you, but my parents chose me. But my parents chose me, amen? This is why the gospel is so great. Jesus is frustratingly unfussy about who he chooses and who he loves. I'll say that again. Jesus is frustratingly unfussy about who he chooses and who he loves. So if you're a Christian in this room, remember that. Leave today with that in mind because Jesus did a whole lot more than just die on that cross for you to cover your sins. That's just one thing among many. He purchased you. He chose you and he brought you in to his family, the family of God. So the first reality is God's adoption. Second, we see the reality of God's characteristics or godly characteristics. And this comes from the latter part of verse 12. Paul goes on to list several characteristics that really make up the life of a believer. And actually they're a perfect picture of the new life that we have in Jesus. In fact, I would even go so far as to say that these four or five things that Paul lists here in the end of verse 12 are virtues that Jesus embodied, lived out perfectly when he was here on earth. Just look at them again, read them, or go ahead and look at it. And as you're seeing them, think about the, the account of Jesus's life in the gospels. And you would say, yeah, everything I've read, that's Jesus. And this is exactly why people were so drawn and attached to Jesus because he was everything that they wanted to be. And for us, he's everything that we want to be. And so we need help in putting on this new lifestyle. We need help in making this new reality real. But brother and sister, don't misunderstand me here. It's easy for me just to get up here and say, hey, do this. The Bible says do that. I don't think that Paul used these words with a particular sentiment in mind. I think Paul knew, even as a human, I mean, because think about who Paul was before he was Paul. Y'all know the story, right? Hated Christians, persecuted them, tried to kill them. And then God chose him and radically changed his life. So I think Paul knew that 
living these things out, making these things a new reality or putting these things on, he knew that it would be hard. How many of us can sit here to say, yeah, out of those five things this week, I probably blew four of them. Let's just be honest. We probably blew all of them, right? (laughs) These are hard. We know this. But doing these things, as the Bible commands us and it shows us, not, will not only require the power of God in us, but it also requires the act of our own will. We have to be obedient. There is an element of, of us choosing to say, yes, I'm going to commit my life to this. I'm going to do this. We have to train ourselves to practice these things daily. And we must remember this. Don't get discouraged when you blow it. Don't get discouraged when you fail. Lord, help us not to forget that we are continually covered in your grace every moment of every day, even when we don't meet your standard of this new reality. He's forgiven us. Forgiven. That's a, you ever thought about that word? That's, that's a powerful word, isn't it? I don't think there's a person in this room this morning that at some point or another, I don't care how young you are, maybe how old you are, at some point or another in your life, you've experienced forgiveness. And in that experience, you realize the power of forgiveness. Now, if you haven't experienced that, just wait. It'll happen. You know why? Because you're broken, you'll mess up, and you'll need forgiveness. In my own life, by God's grace, I've learned about the power of forgiveness, thankfully, in pictured perfectly in my wife. (laughs) Don't throw a knife at me again, hon. (laughs) Love you. Uh, C.S. Lewis would agree with me. I would agree with him. In fact, in his book, Mere Christianity, he said this, everyone thinks forgiveness is a lovely idea until he or she has something to forgive. Does that not just picture us so perfectly? Like I can think of my own life and working and dealing with people. I'd be like, yeah, you messed up. You should, you should go and seek forgiveness. You just do it. And then when it happens to me or I have something to forgive, it's not so easy. But this is why we need this new reality. This is why Paul tells us to put on these things. So that's the second reality, godly characteristics. The third one that I see really quickly comes from verse 13. And this third reality is godly forgiveness. Godly forgiveness. Listen, it's really easy for me or any preacher, pastor for that matter, to stand up on a platform and say, hey, listen, we need to forgive others because we have been forgiven by Christ Jesus himself. Amen. Everyone knows that, right? Does everyone know that that is the basis and the motivation for our forgiveness? Would you all agree with me? Do you believe that? Great, I can close the Bible, pray, and we can go home. Maybe not. Maybe you would agree with me that there there might be a little bit more to this idea of forgiveness in Colossians chapter three. I think there is. So let me kind of explain why I think that. I think this third reality uh, of godly forgiveness here in verse, the, excuse me, verse 13, launches what off preceded it in verse 12. So look at verse 12 again, just kind of read through it, skim through it, and then look at verse 13. I think that Paul knew for Christians to be in true unity, like the picture of a church, and to forgive one another, 
To do that, we first have to exhibit godly characteristics, okay? The truth is this. Forgiveness comes a whole lot easier when we look more like Jesus. Amen? I don't think Jesus had a problem forgiving people. So Paul goes on to explain these godly characteristics, these character traits, and then he goes on to say, and forgive one another. Because I think Paul knew that forgiveness comes easier when we look more like Jesus. There's a gentleman by the name of Mark Manel. He wrote a little commentary on Colossians. It's actually back here at the Welcome Center, the little blue book. I, I took it right out of the book. And he, he says this, Christian community is only going to survive. So he's talking about not only the church, but the communities, little huddles and, and friendships and relationships that we build. Christian community is only going to survive if someone is dishing out forgiveness left, center, and right. This includes the pastor and the leaders being willing to forgive the congregation and vice versa. It includes the old being willing to forgive the young and vice versa. It includes the well-off and respectable being able to forgive the not so well-off and vice versa. Now, of course, some situations can be highly complicated and they may actually require mediation and support and prayer. I would agree with that. But it really does depend on a particular attitude. And what's the attitude that he wants to push us towards? The willingness to forgive. Forgiveness is an act of will. It is a part of our new clothes. And I would add this. I would say forgiveness is a part of the Christian's new reality. But we must remember as Christians, as we do these things, as we look at Colossians chapter three and see these characteristics and we see what Paul is telling the Colossians to do and us for that matter, we should not look at these things and understand it as do this or else. Y'all know what I mean? I think parents, we're used to saying that to our kids, do this or else. That's not what this is saying. Paul is not saying, do these things or else. Rather, he's reminding us, we do them for two words. Because God. Two words I remember hearing years ago. And the way it was explained to me, I'll never forget. And I just kind of said it, but I want to say it differently. Two most powerful words in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. But God. We were unrighteous, rebelling against our creator, bound to hell, but God. I'll speak more on this in just a moment, but I wanted to remind you, Christian, don't get caught up in a more human mindset of doing these things or else. That's not the way grace works. So we've seen three realities. Let me touch on this last one and begin to wrap up. The last reality that I see in this passage just comes directly from verses 14 and 15 are godly love and peace. Godly love and peace. Look, I'm gonna be honest with y'all. Um, I get excited to get into preach. You know, there's always a little anxiousness, nervous right before. But I love uh, getting to study the word and try and figure out what God is saying and then communicate it to fellow brothers and sisters. And here's what I determined last night, even at 11 o'clock. There's so much that we could talk about here. Uh, in fact, Cole would agree with me. Verses 14 and 15 could be a sermon of its own. Could it not? It absolutely could. But let me see if I can touch on a couple things really quick that I had to fumble through 
this week. Are you ready? All right, we're coming down, we're landing, end of the sermon, hang with me. I apologize if I get a little excited or I geek out over this, okay? All right, first, Paul says, look at the verses, to put on love because it binds everything together in perfect harmony. Now, as I studied this passage, my mind immediately thought of the word love in the Bible, all right? Does anyone know how to define the word love? Go ahead, try. Anyone know, how how would you define the word love? Any takers? God, right? God himself. First John chapter four, jot it down. Verses seven through 12, John says that. But specifically verse eight, John says, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. So my mind goes in that direction. And as I see this in Colossians chapter three, now as cool as that is, I notice that Paul is saying that before we exhibit these godly characteristics, kindness, compassion, humility, and patience. He says, what, what do we do first? What do we do first? Verse 14, put on love above these things, put on love. Love is most important. We must first don our new uniforms, our new clothes. We must put on Christ. But then Paul goes further. And as he does this, so does my mind. So just hang with me. I'm not going crazy. Paul says that love binds everything together in perfect harmony. Do y'all see that? It does. Absolutely. I believe that. Not just because it's there in the Bible, but I've seen it. It's a reality. I've seen it. But the way my mind sees it is this way. Perfect harmony is the description of how love binds everything together. Y'all see that? Love binds everything together in perfect harmony. So it's description. So love does the work of binding things together, but the way that it does it is in perfect harmony, which my mind goes, that's just a picture of the the Trinity. God, the father, God, the son, and God, the spirit in perfect harmony, working together at all times, even before the foundation of the the world was laid, working together in perfect harmony. But also, as I read this, I got curious. What about this adjective that Paul uses here of perfect harmony? So I got a little nerdy and I looked up the Greek word. By the way, anyone can do this if you have Google, just go to the right resource. I looked up the Greek word that Paul used here and I found this. The definition of that word perfect harmony that Paul uses means completeness. It means maturity. It means perfectness. So that means that Paul, by using this word, is referring to a place or a position that love will bring us to. Does that make sense? You still with me? Now, let me ask you this. When will we ever be perfect? Go ahead. Surely not here, right? We're striving for godliness. We're striving for perfection because that's God's standard. We're not ever going to be that. So when will we be perfect? In heaven, absolutely, yes. So then I got a little more nerdier and I looked at the cognate of the word. What the heck is a cognate? I don't know. Does anyone care? I don't know. I I looked it up, but here's what I found. The root meaning of the Greek word communicates the idea of being built off of what precedes it 
to support the stage that comes next. Now, I hope I didn't lose you. Let me say it again. The Greek word, the root of it, communicates the idea of being built off of what comes before to support the stage that comes next. So essentially, this is the way I see it. Perfect harmony is describing the final stage of your future consummation. Now, uh, I don't know if there's adults or I'm sure there's young people in here who are like, what's consummation? The end point. Just think about it that way. The end point, the conclusion, okay? It is describing the final stage of your future consummation and mine for that matter. But it is built off of what has come before. So here's what I'm saying. The reason Paul tells us and the reason it is so important to put on love above compassion, above kindness, above humility and everything else is because love initiates us or gives us the ability to be like Jesus, but it also will bring us to our final state as Christians. And what is our final state? Heaven, perfect harmony with God, our father, God, the creator. Amazing, isn't it? Just by looking at a couple of silly Greek words. Then Paul adds this last line in verse 15. The classical Greek usage of verse 15 where Paul says, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body. The classical Greek idea, uh, meaning, usage for that word uh, describes the peace that Jesus gives to believers when they become his. Does that make sense? When you became a Christian, you were given a lot, not only forgiveness, a whole lot. So think about it like this. Like I could say, if y'all didn't know me, I was a visitor, I'd say, well, I'm married and I have a kid back home, but you're looking at my hand and I don't have a wedding band. I could be lying, right? Sorry, hon, I I just forgot to put it on this morning. (laughs) And I get terrible rashes when I wash my hands with my wedding band. I'm sorry, it's my soft skin. Anyway, when I got married, Sarah and I got married, we had a certificate that says, we're married. We gave each other rings. It says we're married. It signifies who I am in my life. It made a new reality that I am now made together with one. In the same way that when we became Christians, Jesus gave you that peace. Why does he do that? Well, that peace affirms who you are in Christ. It proves that you truly do belong to him. Now, the word right after that, where Paul says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. The idea for the word rule, when Paul used it in the Greek, the Greeks saw it and thought, oh yeah, to act like an umpire. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Thinking of an umpire now, sitting by a, a catcher at a baseball game or a referee. So what does that mean for us? How do we let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts? Well, quite literally, I think this is, kind of what Paul means. You and I, Christians for that matter, should let the peace of Christ be the deciding factor for everything that we do and say as Christians. Amen? So here's what I mean. How do you do that? How do you live that out practically? Well, ask yourself this question. Is what I'm about to do or say going to make for peace in this situation? And if not, then don't do it. It's that simple. Is the decision I have to make about fill in the blank, whatever, where I'm going to go to school, where I'm going to work, 
is the decision I have to make about this going to make for peace in my life? Christian, don't get confused. Don't struggle with, well, the answer is no, but no, don't do it. If it doesn't make for peace, let peace rule in your hearts. Let it be the governing authority of how you conduct yourselves. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which you were called in one body and be thankful. Be thankful for what? What do you think Paul wants us to be thankful for? I would say this, be thankful for this new reality that is called the Christian life, amen? Now, I know we've talked about a lot and I've given you four points, but I wanna leave you with a main idea. I wanna invite the band up to, to come and lead us into a response time. I want to challenge you with this. Yes, there were four realities I touched on, but if I could leave you with one thing, here's, here's a main idea. It's four words. Be who you are. Now, I'm, I'm talking to Christians right now. If you're here visiting and this whole church and Jesus thing is new to you, please hang around and talk to one of us. We'd love to. Be who you are, dear Christian. This is not do this or else. I can tell you what I didn't read in verses 12 through 15. Paul does not say, hey, guys in Colossae, do better at doing these things. Do better at being compassionate. Do better at being kind and humble. Do you know why Paul doesn't say that? Because you already are. Man, that's a reason to celebrate and sing. You already are. You know how I know this? The Bible teaches it. When you became a Christian, when you got, when you, when you got this new reality, this new position of being dead and now alive, in that moment, God did two things. He sanctified you and justified you, okay? Now I want to focus on the sanctification here. This is why I believe this. Sanctification is a twofold process. Jot this down. This changed my reality, my perception of God's grace and forgiveness and salvation. In your moment of sanctification, God at that moment said, that one is holy. That one is lovable. That one is forgiven. I see that one the same way that I see my son, Jesus. Amen? And we're sitting here like, oh man, I blew it again. How could God ever love me? He does. He proved it to you by Jesus dying on the cross. So in that moment, when you got converted, God sanctified you, but this is where it gets glorious. And this is why Colossians chapter three means so much. Sanctification is a twofold process because you were declared holy and lovable and just, but at the same time, God is working in you day by day. It's a process that never ends. Well, I take that back. When will it end? In consummation either when you die or when Jesus comes back. Because then you're in his presence and then you are what you are. But for us on earth, this side of heaven, still dealing with the struggles of sin and brokenness, be who you are. I don't know if I gave you all any application today in this, this message. Let me give you some motivation. It's been said that the Christian life is a marathon and not a sprint. Have y'all heard that before? Christian life is a marathon and not a sprint. It's a race that we run every day of our lives. But Paul encourages us to run this race with endurance and to sprint towards the goal. What's the goal? 
Sunday school answer. Come on. Jesus. Amen. Last week during camp, we had our good friend Chad Poe here. And he said this, and I didn't write it down, but I was like, oh, need to put that in the mind and not lose it. Chad said this right up here. He said, because we live in a world with limitations, that should motivate us to live life to its fullest. Does that make sense? Because we live in a limited world, we should live to its fullest. So Christian, live fully for the glory of God, striving to be like Jesus. Be who you are. And if you're unsure if that's you, and this, this Jesus thing sounds enticing and you're not sure what the gospel is and you wanna, you wanna get more information about this new reality, the way that happens is just by you accepting the gospel, trusting the gospel. The gospel is simply the life, death, and resurrection of the perfect God, man, Jesus Christ. He lived the life that you couldn't. He died the death that you deserve. He stood in your place. So give your life to him and trust him. And this can be your new reality. Amen. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for this time together as brothers and sisters. Lord, help us now to respond in such a way that not only glorifies you, but Lord would do good for our own benefit. Father, I pray that you continue to work as you have been working from the moment the service started, stirring hearts and convicting and encouraging. Help us now as we sing of this glorious reality. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you were encouraged by today's message, subscribe and rate us wherever you stream your podcasts. To learn more about the venue at Southcrest, visit us online at southcrest.org or on Facebook and Instagram by searching for Southcrest Baptist Church.